Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 213, Danegeld's Peace and Shame. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com, and it costs about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Lolita, Justine, and Ralph for signing up already. There have been a couple developments that might be of interest to you. First off, one of the more common requests that I get is for a way for memberships to be given as gifts. Well, I'm happy to tell you that we finally have a way for you to buy a one-year gift certificate, which can then be redeemed on the site for a single-year prepaid membership. It's located at the top of the BritishHistoryPodcast.com under the cryptic title, Gift Certificates. Second, I figured out a way to give former members a discount. So that means that if you used to be a member, but you canceled or let it lapse, you can log in at the site and sign back up at a 10% discount. If you're having a hard time logging in, or you can't remember your username or password, just email me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com and I'll fix it for you. In related news, co-producer Z, myself, and a few podcasty friends have put together a pool on how many emails I'm going to get asking for tech support. And I'm not going to tell you what number I picked, but I'll just say this. I'm counting on you guys to hit that target. With that out of the way, let's get back to history. Last time we left off, Alfred, who we have been following since his earliest days, and whom we now know the most intimate details of, including the state of his butt, which was swollen, and the state of his libido, which apparently was also swollen. Well, by mid-871, his brother was dead, and he was the last surviving son of old King Athelwolf, son of Egbert. That meant that he was king of Wessex. And, as is the way with many leaders, he inherited a kingdom in crisis, and following a defeat at the hands of the Danes in the heart of his kingdom, new King Alfred was forced to pay a Danegeld in return for peace. Not exactly the glorious way you probably wanted him to start his reign. But something to keep in mind is that paying a Danegeld had a long and storied history in Western Europe. The Carolingian kings made payments like these regularly. Rome also dealt with similar tributes, and the Celts did the same. In Europe, paying off your enemies was a common form of attaining peace for the past thousand years. Later historians tend to look down on such payments but that is a recent perspective. This distaste for Danegelds was actually given to us by the same people that have given us a lot of our opinions about the past. The Victorians. Now, if the Victorians had taken issue with the payments of tributes and Danegelds because they tended to create major issues for the local population, including famine, then I could totally see their point. After all, these payments were not a minor matter, and they would have caused all kinds of havoc among the people. But, if you read Victorian historians, that is not their issue. Their issue with tributes and the Danegeld is twofold. One, it reminded them of King Athelred II, also known as Ethelred the Unready. And two, because the Victorians considered the Gelds unheroic. Now, as for point number one, 
I think that's a pretty unfair characterization of Dane Gelds, and honestly, it's an oversimplification of the issues that characterize the reign of Athelred Unred. The Dane Geld was not the only thing in play during that period. The Victorian focus on the Dane Geld is a bit like trying to claim that the reason why the Phantom Menace sucked was because of its use of CG. And, therefore, all uses of CG in any movie must be bad. That's stupid. The way CG was ham-fistedly shoved into the movie in place of plot, pacing, and good taste was certainly part of the problem, but the deficiencies of The Phantom Menace went so far beyond that. Master, sir, I heard Yoda talking about midichlorians. I've been wondering, what are midichlorians? See? And these Victorian writers, who are responsible for the stories and opinions that trickled down to you and me, also tend to conveniently forget that Charlemagne, Oswiu, Penda, and many other mighty kings often either paid or extracted these sort of payments. And frankly, they often did both depending on the circumstances. From my perspective, it seems like the Victorian historians were looking for an already unpopular historical figure to justify their hate for the Danegelds. And they settled on everyone's favorite whipping post, Alfred's great-great-grandson, King Athelred II, also known as Athelred Unred. So, what was the real reason for the Victorian hate on the Danegeld? Well, paying a Danegeld wasn't heroic. And that was a huge problem because the Victorian historians were creating a national story. Much like the Anglo-Saxon monks were trying to compile a spiritual truth, the first British historians were telling the story of the greatness of Britain. Members who are caught up on the members feed will recognize this as a cultural imaginary. The Victorians were creating a simple cultural story that they could look back upon. A narrative of the past that said, we have the blood of heroes in our veins, and it's in our nature to be courageous, stoic, and victorious. We are the inheritors of this world, and our past stands as proof of that. That perspective oozes out of just about everything that Victorian writers did. Their obsession with Rome, the general neglect of the Anglo-Saxons, and the non-stop victory lapse when the Normans arrived. See, for many of the Victorian historians, the past was a time of chivalry, heroism, and faith. It was all knights, god, and manliness. It was awesome and romantic. And it served as justification for exporting British rule to the rest of the world, usually at the point of a musket. It was a powerful cultural imaginary. But the trouble was that these historians kept on running into records of Christian leaders paying off pagans in order to avoid battle. That was decidedly not heroic or romantic. English heroes were supposed to have a stiff upper lip and valiantly die in battle for their god, or even better, for the love of a noblewoman or their king. A Danegeld sounds like something a faithless coward would pay, not a warrior of God. There's a cognitive dissonance there, and it could be rectified by characterizing these payments as shameful aberrations that were breaking from the true English spirit. This interpretation among the Victorians was so strong that over a century later, you can still read historians talking about the Danegeld in terms of shame and as an attack on the honor of the king. But was it? 
I don't think there's support in the record for that inference. Following this Danegeld, you would expect the written record to be casting aspersions on Alfred's honor. But they don't. Instead, all throughout this period, there's a distinct lack of shade being tossed at kings for paying Danegelds. And you have to look at this from their perspective. This is a culture that had a long tradition of paying the Ware Guild, the man price, the fee that you pay for killing someone you weren't supposed to. The whole idea of the Ware Guild was to avoid blood feuds. So rather than having retribution spiraling out of control, a lump sum would be provided to the family, and of course the king would take his cut. But after that, the matter would be resolved. That was it. And for the most part, it seems like everybody was on board with that. Now, was there an honor culture in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms? Hell yeah, there definitely was. But the Anglo-Saxon understanding of their honor didn't disallow these transactional bids for peace. And the more that you look into the culture, the more you realize that the Victorians were projecting their own disappointment upon the past. This disappointment was so intense that you even have Teddy Roosevelt weighing in on the matter when he argued that people, quote, would face all the disasters of war rather than purchase that base prosperity which is bought at the price of national honor, end quote. Basically, people would rather be obliterated than lose their honor by paying for peace. Now that was in 1907, and while that does make it technically just after the Victorian era, that had to have been one of the most Victorian things I have ever read. The only thing that can make it more Victorian is if it was written in a bordello and it had some judgmental rules about sex. But here's the takeaway. The idea of what constitutes our national honor isn't a constant throughout human history. It changes throughout time and culture. Similarly, the idea that paying for peace is somehow a mark against that honor isn't an innate fact. Some cultures have seen the world that way, but it's not a universal truth. And in all likelihood, rather than being shamed by the Danegeld, there's a good chance that most people in the time of Alfred would have just seen this as business. The shameful part was getting their asses kicked in battle. But most of the Anglo-Saxons now were probably just relieved to be able to go home, even if it meant they were now staring down the barrel of some pretty extreme taxes. These payments were common during this period of history, and for good reason. They generally worked. Even Charles the Bald utilized the Danegeld, and that guy could screw up just about anything. And yet, when the Danegeld was paid, the Danes would depart more often than not, many times heading straight across the channel to us, but we'll ignore that part. Where Charles did get into trouble was when he hired Danes to fight his enemies. That was generally a bad idea. But as for just a plain payment of a Danegeld, generally, it would buy you a period of peace. Eternal peace? Probably not, but at least a little bit of peace. And something else to keep in mind is that these weren't the 8th century hearthwarods of Chinnaherd and Chinnawolf that we talked about in episode 154. I get the sense that the Victorian writers really wanted them to be, but they weren't. A century had passed since then, and the military had changed. The Ferd of Wessex weren't professionals who were trained to kill since they were adolescents. They were mostly farmers armed with spears and shields. And chances are, they wanted to go home and plow their fields. 
and they probably didn't care all that much whether people a thousand years later would think that their honor was now besmirched. And frankly, judging by the reaction within Wessex, it seems like most of the rest of the kingdom took a similar position on the Danegeld. Namely, that they should pay it, rather than keep losing men in battle. And sure, no one was going to be happy about having to pay the Danegeld. Very few people like paying their taxes. But it was better than the alternative. Besides, they didn't have much of a choice. They tried war, but that didn't work out. And now the army of Wessex was in tatters following months of those battles. And meanwhile, the Danes were newly reinforced by the army of Guthrum. Payment was the wisest course of action. And the Danes agreed. Now, it's possible that you're surprised that the Danes accepted the payment. After all, the story of 871 is largely a series of Danish victories over Wessex. And following all those victories, they were now operating within the West Saxon heartland, and King Alfred's conscript army was shattered. So you would think that this would be exactly the right moment to press the advantage, kill the last son of Athelwolf, and complete the conquest of Wessex. And given the northern culture of sagas, glory, and Valhalla, you might also think that death or glory would be exactly the perspective that they would be taking on this matter. But once again, we have to divorce ourselves from the modern perspective that assumes that payment was a cop-out. Payment was exactly why the Danes were here in the first place. We've been looking at about a century of Viking activity in the British Isles. And during that time, the Northmen had developed a very keen sense of determining the quickest and easiest path to plunder. And make no mistake about it, despite the sagas and the stories of Halfdan being a son of Ragnar, when it came down to it, the Danish army was a large band of pirates. They weren't here to die a glorious death. They were here to get paid. The one wrinkle in this was the fact that this was supposed to be a quick surprise attack in winter. And yet, it had turned into a bloody protracted campaign. And even though Halfdan had reinforcements, the Battle of Wilton, which had just been fought proved to be a bit more of a problem than he was expecting, and Halfdan had to use trickery to get past the West Saxon shield wall. This just wasn't the easy fight that he was hoping for. So my guess is that he was all too happy to take the payment and go seek his fortunes elsewhere. And I doubt that he had any concerns about honor when that payment was made. But what his men might have taken issue with was profit. Wessex was on the ropes. And the Danes who were serving Halfdan and Guthrum might have wanted a bit more plunder. Or maybe they even wanted lands of their own. The main job of a Viking king was to bring his men riches. Don't forget that it wasn't all that long ago that even mighty Wayland found himself in trouble for failing on that account. You have to bring your men plunder if you want to stay in power. And I'm sure that Halfdan was all too aware of that fact. So, while getting that payment would have been good because it would buy him a little time, he still needed to figure out how to keep his men happy. And that meant finding a new target, and quickly. The truth is that while the West Saxons would have been probably a bit unhappy to actually pay the Danegeld, and while Halfdan would have likely seen the Danegeld as just a short-term way to keep his army from mutinying, 
we don't see anything in the record that would indicate that the payment of the Danegeld had anything to do with honor or lack thereof. It was much more material than that. And that's what I want you to take away from this. While it is understandable that your first instinct might be to view Alfred's payment with disdain, that's a modern view that was likely influenced by the Victorians. For the Danes and the West Saxons, this looks like it was just business. But it was also tactical. Now, of course, the Victorians often ignore that part. Famed author Rudyard Kipling quipped in a poem, quote, If once you have paid him the Danegeld, you never get rid of the Dane, end quote. Tell us how you really feel, Rudyard. And that point of view, that a Danegeld was strategically stupid, was pretty common among Victorian writers. But the fact is that paying for peace could be a sound strategic move, depending on the circumstances. And King Alfred wasn't stupid. From the look of things, it seems like Alfred knew exactly what he was buying. And it wasn't eternal peace. He saw what happened to East Anglia, and how the Danegeld only bought them a few years of peace before the Danes returned. And looking at what Alfred was up to, it's clear that he knew they were coming back. What Alfred was buying with this Danegeld wasn't eternal peace. He was buying time to reform his fyrd, organize his defenses, and prepare for the next time that these Danes marched onto his lands. This was an investment. And on the other side of this, given that the Danes were also battered from months of war, and the West Saxons have forced them to pay with blood for every ounce of plunder, it was a payment that the Danes happily accepted. So, peace was bought. I've often wondered how these things were arranged. The sources remain silent, but coming to terms with the Danes must have been a nerve-wracking experience. These were strange foreign people who worshipped pagan gods, and they were known for their tricks in the battlefield and for their hit-and-run tactics. My guess is that trust would have been in short supply as the West Saxon emissaries approached the Danes. Though... It is genuinely hard to see what the circumstances were actually like on the ground for these sort of arrangements. I mean, there might have actually been a sort of code of honor that allowed easy access of emissaries and non-combatants. And I say that because we have this odd inscription within the Codex Aureus in which an elderman named Alfred, he was a different Alfred, tells us about how he acquired books from the Danes. Quote, I, Elderman Alfred, and Werber, my wife, obtained these books from the heathen army with our pure money, that was with pure gold, and this we did for the love of God and for the benefit of our souls, and because we did not wish these holy books to remain longer in heathen possession. End quote. The Elderman ended up giving them to Christ Church in Canterbury, but that's a hell of a striking account, isn't it? An elderman was able to arrange the purchase of holy books from the Danes. And apparently, the whole thing was carried out without any issues. So maybe there were systems in place to allow communication and exchange. But that being said, I still imagine that delivering payment must have been a fresh pit of anxiety hell, both for elderman Alfred and his wife, and also for the emissaries of King Alfred, who were delivering the Danegeld. I mean, 
Whatever unfortunate souls were sent out to make this delivery would have been loaded down with treasure, which would have made them slow-moving and easily spotted targets. And given how common raiding was among the Danes, if I was a part of that little band, I would have been wetting myself all the way to Reading. Now, another thing that we don't know is how much was actually paid. Thankfully, we do have a charter dated to 879 that seems to give us a sense of scale and also of how Alfred made his payment. We're told that there was an earlier payment that was demanded by the king that was to be rendered to the pagans. So it was probably this Danegeld. But the Bishop of Winchester was unable to make that payment. So the bishop had to sell the rights to his lands to Alfred in exchange for the king making the payment in his stead. And what we can glean from that is that it was cash that they were delivering to King's Halfdan and Guthrum. And a lot of it. Further, the archaeological record supports this, as we find Viking hordes in the south dated to around this same period of time. So Wessex paid for its peace in coin, and did so handsomely. Now some scholars have taken this charter to mean that he taxed primarily the church, but I don't see any evidence for that. Rather, it seems that we just happen to have one charter from the church that maybe referenced this event eight years later. And it came from the church because that was who was writing stuff down at the time. But just because we have one record mentioning the church was taxed to pay the pagans doesn't mean that only the church was taxed. If Bishop Aylfirth was selling church lands to make payment, my guess is that everyone took a haircut on this thing. But that being said, you might have noticed that Alfred was following in the footsteps of his grandfather and taking advantage of the situation in order to wrestle some lands away from the church. Say what you want about the House of Wessex, they were incredibly gifted when it came to opportunism. And this detail is why I always smirk when Asser talks about how godly King Alfred was. I don't know how Alfred felt internally, but I can tell you how he behaved. And he was acting like a shrewd man who was far more concerned with the here and now. And the men of the cloth were reacting accordingly. While Asser paints Alfred as a sort of King David figure, a person actually that King Alfred would become fascinated with later in life, not everyone agreed. And some figures among the church were busy comparing Alfred to Judas. The truth is that there was quite a lot of butthurt among the men of the cloth, and for good reason. From their perspective, they had just been robbed by the Danes and their king. Alfred's seizures of lands might have been financially wise, and it might have given him leverage to maintain influence within his kingdom, just like it had done with his grandfather. But it also resulted in members of the church holding grudges against Alfred. Maybe not Jay and Bert level grudges, but still significant. But that's a story for another time. Back to the younger King Alfred. Sometime later in 871, it seems that Alfred had finally paid the Danes enough, and they marched or sailed out of his kingdom. The Northmen were loaded down with plunder, so movement would have been slow and difficult. But King Halfdan still needed to present his army with more plunder, just in case there was a potential mutiny building following the long, bloody war in Wessex. So plunder, preferably easy plunder, needed to be his next stop. 
Now, the Danes seem to have had some degree of understanding regarding the political structure of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And as they were sitting in Reading, I wonder if they were also figuring out that King Burgred of Mercia was in a politically rough position. I mean, unlike Wessex, which was politically dominated by a single dynasty, Mercia had multiple powerful dynasties, all vying for control. And in the end, that made it look a lot like the recently conquered Kingdom of Northumbria. There were fault lines in that kingdom. And to make matters worse, King Burgred had been telegraphing weakness from day one. The first impression that King Halfdan got of these Midlanders was at Snottingham. And there, they refused to fight, even though they were supported by the formidable army of Wessex. And then, all throughout 871, King Burgred again remained noticeably reluctant to fight the Danes. And while it is possible that he was simply honoring his promise of peace, the fact of the matter was that it gave the impression that Mercia was weak. There are also physical signs of the weakness within Mercia, and they were probably present in Halfdan's pockets. The coins minted during this period in Mercian history were terribly debased. The Mercian economy was wrecked, and a poor king was a weak king. So the obvious target for an easy follow-up raid was Mercia. And as luck would have it, there was a rather handy Mercian city that could be reached either by foot or by boat. It was a trading city that was swimming with treasure. And all Halfdan and his army needed to do was sail down the Thames and strike London. Now this was a nightmare for Mercia. Wessex might be able to handle losing Reading for six months. After all, it was just a royal ton. But London? That wasn't like Reading. That was not a royal ton. And Mercia simply could not do without access to the trade income and the royal mint that was located there. London had to be retaken. They had no choice. As for specifics of what happened regarding the Danes in London, and how they got in, how they controlled it, all that kind of stuff. Well... This is Mercia, and we have almost no records of Mercia at this time. So, we have large blank spots in our account. All we're told is that they left Reading and relocated to London and wintered there. But King Burgred must have pitched a fit over this. Not only did he recently pay a Danegeld to Halfdan, which would have, and judging by his coins, did wreck his economy but he was also incredibly well-behaved following that payment. He didn't lift a finger while his brothers-in-law were fighting, and in the case of King Athelred, dying, trying to hold off this army of Northmen. Burgred was the very image of a compliant Anglo-Saxon king. And despite all of that, suddenly there was an army of gingers occupying the trade center of his kingdom. To make his situation even worse, I'm sure he knew that King Alfred wasn't going to come to his rescue. Even if Alfred did want to help, and I doubt he did, but even if he was feeling generous, Alfred simply didn't have the manpower. If he had, he wouldn't have paid that Danegeld. But the fact remains that, whether it was by choice or necessity, by sitting on his hands, Alfred was doing something pretty tough here. He was betraying his last remaining sibling. Queen Athelswith of Mercia, wife of Burgred. And I wonder how he felt about that. 
Maybe you took comfort in looking at the fundamentals of the situation and realized that, you know, it was just really out of his hands. Years of fighting with the Danes had left both kingdoms so bloody that their coalition had broken down due to sheer pragmatism. They simply didn't have the ability to help each other, even if they wanted to. But it still probably would have been hard. And for Burgred, after seeing what happened to King Edmund of East Anglia, the king who died in battle against Ivor the Boneless. Well, it seems that King Burgred of Mercia wasn't exactly eager to follow in his footsteps. Suicide charges are only heroic if they're rare. If you do too many, they just start to feel stupid. So, in 872, King Burgred paid another Danegeld. This was the second one he would have paid in about five years. And judging from the few records that we have from this area, it was an enormous burden. For example, the Bishop of Worcester sold some of his lands to one of Burgred's thanes in the following year. And here's what he had to say about why he was selling those lands. Quote, This, however, the above-mentioned bishop agreed to chiefly because of the very pressing affliction and immense tribute of the barbarians in the same year when the pagans sat in London. End quote. Even the wealthy Bishop of Worcester went broke after being taxed for the payment of the Danegeld. And afterwards, he had to sell some of his lands just to keep his head above water. Mercia was at a breaking point. But things were starting to really look up for King Halfdan. Even though his campaign started out a bit dodgy, he was now riding high following the successful invasion of Wessex. I mean, he had more plunder than he knew what to do with, and he was currently kicking his feet up in London, waiting for Burgred to deliver even more money. And as a bonus, as is the way with going on holiday, he even made some friends. Guthrum, Oscatel, and the others seemed like pretty good guys. 871 and 872 were kind of awesome years now that Halfdan had the chance to look back on them. And the best part about this was that this was all just a side project. It was just an adventure. Far to the north, he still had Northumbria. Jorvik was his, and King Egbert and Archbishop Wolfrid were busy holding it down in his name. Everything was coming up half-dan. Well, it was coming up half-dan. The trouble with taking such a long campaign, and it really was a long one, I mean, he was spending his second winter in the field, was that it could lead to troubles with morale. And while victories in the field and the abundance of plunder could stave off problems within his army, that wouldn't matter all that much to the people of Northumbria. After all, they were a conquered people. And the conqueror was now out of town for the second year in a row. That's more than enough time to plan a little bit of strike back. Furthermore, we don't know how many men Halfdan left in Northumbria but it probably wasn't all that many, especially if he asked for reinforcements during his time in Reading. It seems like Halfdan was mostly reliant upon the local administration. He created a puppet king out of King Egbert, and it looks like Halfdan had been betting that Egbert's dynasty could keep control of the kingdom for him, probably with the support of Archbishop Wolfred. But Halfdan might not have taken into account that this was Northumbria, Maybe one dynasty was enough for the people of Wessex, but that would never be enough for the North. 
There were at least five major families vying for control up there. And they had centuries of experience stabbing the hell out of each other for their shot at the northern throne. The moment that Halfdan picked one of the families and elevated them, suddenly the other four families had something in common. A clear enemy. And it wasn't Halfdan. No, they were united around the one thing that all Northumbrian nobles hated most. Someone else on the throne. Northumbria makes Game of Thrones look like Sesame Street. And as anyone could have predicted, leaving King Egbert unprotected for over a year had given the Northumbrian nobles plenty of time to plot a coup. And at some point during the winter of 872, while Halfdan was probably patting himself on the back for doing such a great job in Wessex and Mercia, Northumbria exploded into violence. And at the head of it, was a man by the name of Rick Siga. We don't know his dynasty. We don't know what sort of coalition he formed to get him to this point. But we do know that he wanted King Egbert's crown. And for his part, King Egbert was a Northumbrian. He knew what was coming his way. So upon seeing the mob of his enraged countrymen hounding for his blood, he did what most Northumbrians have done in his position. He fled for Mercia along with his co-conspirator, Archbishop Wolfred. And I'm sure that was exactly what poor King Burgred needed at this moment. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast. And you can find links to all our other communities at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.